Uh, the scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33 in the Common English Bible. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, Whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, spouse and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life, cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. If one of you wanted to build a tower, wouldn't you first sit down and calculate the cost to determine whether you have enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when you have laid the foundation but couldn't finish the tower, all who see it would begin to belittle you. They will say, Here, the person who began this here's the person who began construction and couldn't complete it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down to consider whether his 10,000 soldiers could go up against 20,000 coming against them? And if he didn't think he could win, he would send a representative to discuss terms of peace while his enemy was still a long way off. In the same way, none of you who are unwilling to give up all of your possessions can be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know many people who really enjoy pros and cons lists. I'm sure they exist in the world. I personally don't enjoy them. Um, they are helpful in times. Usually if I have to get to a decision where I have to make a pros and cons list, it's like a decision I don't want to make in general and I'm trying to avoid making. It's great with other people. I love giving other people advice about pros and cons in their life and like, here, let me, let me help you with your life. But I just want to keep mine to myself a little bit. Um, but it's those times when we are stuck that they are really, really important and really helpful. What are the arguments for a certain action? What are the arguments against something? Do they match up? And one of, one of on almost every pros and cons list on any decision you've got to make is going to be the cost. What is the cost of this? What is, going, what is it going to cost? Is it worth the cost? What is the opportunity cost that you lose by not doing the thing? This was not a foreign concept in the time of Jesus, as you see from this tricky passage. What is the cost of following Jesus, and what is the cost of not? My friends, we are finishing our series on In the World, on looking at how to live in the world, but not of the world. We began by looking at, at the privilege of being a child of God and how we should respond to it. And then we, we looked at the responsibility of that and what it means to be a Christ follower and how large a circle that God expects of us to see of who our neighbor really is. But today we're really talking about the cost. What is the cost of being in the world. And this chapter from Luke is, has some hard words about the cost of following Jesus. He lays it out plainly. If one of you wanted to build a tower, and wouldn't, wouldn't you first sit down and calculate the cost to determine whether you have enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when you laid the foundation but couldn't finish the tower, all who see it will begin to belittle you. They will say, here's the person who began construction and couldn't complete it. I, came, I moved to Austin in 2001, 
And it was right after the, the first financial um, tech bubble, the dot-com bubble. And so there were, there were half-built buildings all over Austin. Um, there were no large buildings. It was all a bunch of um, comical, unfinished um, contraptions for like pets, the pets.com tower that was never to be. Um, so think of that. What is the cost? You don't want to build something if you don't, can't afford it to begin with. And then, you know, the words of Jesus here are strong and easy to skip over. Whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, spouse and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Disciple, again, means student. So disciple sometimes in church is like, has this rarefied thing, but discipulus really just means a student, someone who's willing to learn from Jesus. You, can't, you aren't ready to learn anything from me if you can't give up these things. These are the words of Jesus in the Bible for us this day. These are not easy words. These are not easy words. And, and sometimes when we come across non-easy words, it's, it's helpful to look at ways that they've been read by others. One of the uh, influential people in my life was a, a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor in Germany in the early 20th century. He, he grew up in Berlin. His father was a colleague of Sigmund Freud's. His father was the, the, like the number one psychiatrist in Berlin in like the 1920s. And so he grew up in a very um, comfortable background, a very privileged and educated background. His family wasn't very much into church, but he became connected to the church. He went to seminary. He went to graduate school. He finished a dissertation on, on the holy community of the church, where he wrote, a Christian who stays away from worship is a contradiction in terms. He then wrote another dissertation, because in Germany you have to write two dissertations. It's a really um, unfair system, and um, about, about the actions of God in the world. He moved to Spain for a year. He was a youth director, actually. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a youth pastor in Spain in the, in the early 1930s. He moved to America and then back, back to Germany right about the time when uh, the Nazis started gaining power. At this time, there were some other pastors in, in Germany that he was connected with, and they would eventually form what is called uh, the Confessing uh, Movement. But soon after... Paul Hindenburg gave Adolf Hitler the chancellorship in Germany. Uh, Bonhoeffer got a job in, in London at a German-speaking church, but he never forgot his people and his connections in Germany. A major current of thought that, of going on at this time with, with Bonhoeffer and colleagues like Karl Barth and his friend Martin Niemöller um, was what was now termed neo-orthodoxy. Niemöller, his name is not famous, but his, his poem is. He wrote this, the poem, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. So Niemöller was a good friend of Bonhoeffer, and Niemöller and Barth and many others uh, were these thinkers who kind of tried to respond to especially what had happened in World War I and the tragedy of that and the horror of the trenches that many of them had fought in. And, and the horror of that reality compared to kind of the, the optimism of a lot of German uh, higher education and, and the look of... of thinking about like anthropology and sociology and all these ways of looking in the church and how they thought Bart and Niemöller and Bonhoeffer that this didn't get to the heart of the horrors of the world and there needed to be a challenge that the gospel spoke directly to. 
But after, after the Nazis took power, Hitler saw the German church as an important um, buttress, an important aspect of Nazism in the country. Because for the most part, the, the German church was anti-communist and anti-Semitic. And those were the two principles of Hitler's power, was anti-communism and anti-Semitism. And he wanted to maintain that authority through the German church. And so he pushed through his own bishop in the German church, who was a supporter of, of Nazism, who started pushing out pastors who were not a part of it. They pushed through this new law in the German church called the Aryan Clause, which meant that if you had any Semitic blood, you couldn't be a pastor. And so at this time, they also tried to remove the Old Testament from the Bible. And um, there was a lot of, there's a lot of images of Jesus. They tried to take away like the Sermon on the Mount. They wanted to take away the meek Jesus and make like a warrior Jesus with Jesus with a sword all the time. And so those were the images. Um, a non-Jewish warrior Jesus was the presentation of the church at this time. So, so Bonhoeffer and Barth and Niemöller were, were acting against this. And in 1934, they put together this, this document called the, the Barman Declaration. And it had these six theses against um, Nazi authority in the church. The first one was the source of revelation is only the word of God, Jesus Christ. Any other possible sources, earthly powers will not be accepted. And this, this gets to how the Nazis wanted to say that we have a new revelation of God, that, that Jesus was an Aryan. And so this is like pushing against that. Again, two, Jesus Christ is the only Lord of all aspects of personal life. There should be no other. Three, the message and order of the church should not be influenced by the current political convictions. Four, the church should not be ruled by a Fuhrer. Five, the state should not fulfill the task of the church and vice versa. State and church are both limited to their own business. And six, therefore, the Barman Declaration rejects the subordination of the church to the state and the subordination of the word and spirit to the church. We cannot control what God is doing. Bonhoeffer was in England when this was, this was written, but he came back in 1935. And at this point, he and many of the people who thought like him were outlawed by, by the German state. And so he formed his own seminary. He formed an underground seminary in a, what was then called Finkenwalde in, in Eastern Prussia and is now in Poland. It's Zdrozja. Zdrozja. It's Polish words are really hard for me to pronounce. Zdrozja. Um, but they broke the law by studying God. They broke the law. They were in hiding training preachers. Um, they were in hiding, living together, studying the Bible, studying the scriptures, practicing preaching. And it was at this time that, that Bonhoeffer wrote his, my, my favorite book by him called The Cost of Discipleship. The book is, in a sense, a commentary on, on the Sermon on the Mount, focusing on the dichotomy between what, what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace and costly grace. He wrote it in hiding with people who were willing to give up their lives to preach the word of God in the face of evil. And he describes very clearly the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. He says, cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace as bargain basement goods, cut rate forgiveness, cut rate sacrament, grace as the church's inexhaustible pantry from which it is doled out by careless hands without hesitation or limit. It is grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace means justification of sin, but not of the sinner, because grace alone does everything. Everything can stay in its old ways. The world remains the world, and we remain sinners. Thus, the Christian should live the same way the world does. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. 
grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate, Jesus Christ. Costly grace, though, is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell everything they have. It is the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must, must be sought again and again, the gift which is to be asked for, the door at which one has to knock. It is costly because it calls us to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God, because it cost God the life of God's Son, and because nothing can be cheap to us, which is costly to God. Above all, it is grace because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. And soon after this book was published, the seminary was closed. Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law, Hans von Dochnani, told him about a plan inside the Abwehr, the German intelligence unit, to take down Hitler. It was at this time that Bonhoeffer traveled to the United States for one last time in 1939. He was giving a series of lectures at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and he had some friends from when he came before. Many of them knew what was going on in Germany and told him, you should stay. You need to stay here. You're safe here. But he wrote, he wrote to his friend, Reinhold Niebuhr, that he could not. He said, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of national life, Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germ Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. He wrote, cheap grace is the mortal enemy of the church. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of Jesus Christ. There is no discipleship with cheap grace. There is no conversion to new life. Jesus said, whoever does not carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And this is how Bonhoeffer understood that phrase. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christian suffering, first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of the world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of the encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But in the same, it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. We cannot follow if we cannot let go. That is the cost of being in the world. You have to let go of the world. The reality is the things we must let go of are the lies we tell ourselves. The things we can't let go of are lies as well that we say, I can't let go of that. I can't change that. I, can't, I wouldn't be myself if I didn't 
have that thing, if I didn't do that thing. The end of the story for, for Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that he was eventually caught in, in a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. He was um, put in prison. One of the first publications translated into English is Letters and Papers of Pris from Prison, um, which is a wonderful little book of his notes and letters that he wrote while he was waiting execution. He was, um, he was finally hung in April of 1945, um, less than a month away from VE Day. But, but his, his, his works live on, and I don't think he would see himself as a waste for going back. That he was able to follow through with the grace that God had given him. For us this day, when we're not under the shadow of, of Adolf Hitler, we are still offered, offered a grace that is costly, offered a grace of transformation, not a grace that is redundant to the world. You are a child of God. You are called to new life. You're not called to go through the motions again and again. You are called with a costly grace because it was costly to God, because it cost God the life of God's son, and because nothing can be cheap to us, which is costly to God. You are worth it to God. You are not your mistakes. You are not the lies of the world. You are a child of God worthy of love and capable of loving, giving, serving praying, offering. You are capable of transformation. You are capable of transformation and new life. You are capable of taking a step towards Jesus Christ this day, of hearing the call, come and follow me, and answering, yes, Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for paying the cost for us and for our salvation. Help us to not be, seek a way from your call. Help us not to seek comfort in lies, but only in your truth and hope and love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.